How are we this morning? We good? Oh, let there be sound. Boom. All right, well, hey, my name is uh, Nick. I'm the pastoral intern here at the church. This morning, we're going to be in James 4, verses 11 through 17. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to James 4. We also have Bibles in the center aisle, and the verse will be on the screen as well. So it's James 4, 11 through 17. And uh, you guys are going to help me read this. We're going to read this out loud together. Here we go. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for for your word, Lord, it teaches us of your, your great grace to uh, a sinful and prideful people, Lord. Would, would you show up big this morning? Holy Spirit, we, we pray, Lord, that you would speak, that you would move, that you would open our hearts and our minds to the words that you're going to speak this morning, Father. And I pray up here that uh, you would increase and I would decrease. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, guys. Well, hey, um, I wanted to start my sermon off by sharing uh, with you all some lyrics from my favorite love song. Okay, this is uh, one of my favorites. Just because of um, the, the times I've listened to it, it's almost brought me to tears to, to just see the self-sacrificing uh, uh, love for another person. And, and, and here are the lyrics. Uh, and if you, uh, if you uh, know the song, don't sing along. Let me, let me have my moment here. <laughs> this is my world. Somewhere I heard that life is a test. I've been through the worst, but I still give my best. God made my mold different from the rest. Then he broke that mold so I know I'm blessed. This is my world. And here's the chorus. This is my favorite part. Girl, you can tell everybody. Go ahead and tell everybody. I'm the man. I'm the man. I'm the man. I mean, isn't it just beautiful, the love that this musician has for himself? I mean, it moves you to tears almost just reflecting on that. Anyways, the reason I share that is this morning we're looking at pride. And the passage we're looking at this morning, James gives us two manifestations or two examples of what a highly exalted view of ourselves does. And basically what James, I would say, teaches us this morning is what we learn is that how we view ourselves will have a direct impact on how we relate to God and how we relate to others. How we view ourselves will have a direct impact on how we relate to God and relate to others. And so the two examples this morning that James uh, gives us are, are, are this. This exalted view of ourselves leads us to look down and disdain and speak against our fellow 
man and this highly exalted view of ourselves causes us to just arrogantly dismiss and disregard God in our lives. And James calls that uh, a sin. James calls that that evil that needs, that needs to be repented of. And instead, I would say that James would encourage us to put on a gospel humility. Tim Keller uh, says gospel humility looks like this. Uh, humility is not thinking uh, less of yourself. It's not thinking more of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And we're going to look at how the gospel frees us. The good news of the grace that we've been shown in Jesus frees us to, uh, to stop obsessing about ourselves and exalting ourselves. So in James 4.10, the, the verse leading up to verse 11 that we just read this, this morning, James says this. He says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. And then he gives us two examples of what it looks like to try to obsess about and live towards just exalting ourselves, exalting ourselves rather than humbling ourselves before the Lord. So I don't have much time this morning since we got to get out of here. Uh, Jeff only gave me about an hour and a half to speak uh, today. So um, why are you guys laughing? That's a, no, just kidding. Okay. Um, so we're going to jump right in. So uh, uh, my first point this morning comes from the text, and I, I would say that James says this. He says, Christian, who are you to judge your neighbor? Look at verse 11 with me. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So right off the bat here, we have a crystal clear a command from James in verse 11 when he says, do not speak evil against your brother. And that word in the Greek is just one word, which literally means to speak against. And it's kind of an all-encompassing word for slander, for gossip, for defamation, for judgment, for criticism. And a, and a, a modern reading of this that James might be saying is, hey, stop talking trash about other people. Just stop talking trash. And what we looked at last week was James was addressing a conflict in the church in James 4.1 when he says, what's causing all these quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that these, these selfish passions are at war within your soul? This selfish ambition, this envy of saying, I want something, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. And side by side with uh, when we put on uh, godly wisdom versus uh, worldly wisdom, we see that godly wisdom, is James says, is selfish ambition and envy, and from, and from that attitude, every evil thing flows. But from godly wisdom, James says, put on gentleness, love, uh, self-control, be open to reason, and full of mercy. And, and I would say that envy and selfish ambition go hand in hand with us having a disdain towards and speaking evil against our fellow man. And what's interesting here is James, uh, what James doesn't say is, uh, hey, it's okay to speak evil against your brother if it's true. If it's true, go ahead and, and call truth truth and speak evil against whoever you want as long as it's true about that person. James, interestingly, interestingly enough, doesn't give us that option in this passage. And, and this is what a biblical scholar, Alec Motier, says about defamation, about slander, and, and speaking evil against uh, our brothers, he says this, it should be on the screen, defamation is forbidden, not as a breach of truth, nor even as a breach of love, but, listen, as a breach of humility, as a breach of humility. And so I think what James illustrates for us is that when we speak against and speak down towards our fellow man, what we're doing, the root cause of that is pride. And what we're doing is we're seeing ourselves as superior to others. We're seeing ourselves, one, as superior to others, two, as superior to God's law, and three, as superior to God himself. 
And so here's the deal. The first point is we see, we see when, we, when we defame our fellow man, it's just, it's just a manifestation of pride because we are uh, seeing ourselves as superior to them in this regard. I think what James is getting at is when we speak evil against somebody else, you better believe we're speaking in favor of ourselves at the same time. When we speak down with, with an attitude of disdain towards our fellow man, you better believe we're, we're doing that from a highly exalted platform that, that honestly doesn't exist. We speak down so we can be lifted up. We speak against so we can be spoken in favor of. And we, we know this to be true, right? If we've heard of uh, someone having an affair, someone we know, or maybe a celebrity or politician, we, we speak out against that, right? But it always comes back, it always relates back to us somehow. I would never... I would never do that. I would never lie and cheat like that. How could they? Right? What are you doing? You're just, you're just puffing yourself up. Puffing yourself up. If you're a parent here and you've hung out with other parents before and, and maybe you've had this conversation, did you see the way they discipline their kids? I would never talk to my kids like that. And what you're saying there is I'm a morally superior parent. And then how about this one? And, and woe is me. I've fallen way short of this even this past week. Uh, but... But we, we live in a kind of a, an interesting culture since November, and, and even, even, even before November uh, with what happened and just the, the vision that has been uh, causing the, this country from, from anyways, from essentially this attitude of how could somebody vote for that person? I don't, I don't care who you voted for, you probably fought that thought this year. How could somebody vote for what they stand for and vote for that person? What you're saying there is, again, I, I'm morally superior. I would never do that because I'm more intellectual than them. And so James is saying when we speak evil against, we're speaking in favor of. It's, it's just a form of pride. And the next thing James says is, is uh, and by the way, uh, yeah, and, and the next thing he says is that we see ourselves as superior to God's law. Look at verse 11. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So what, what in the world is, is James talking about here, right? When he says you, you are a judge, or a judge of the law, and actually it's pretty straightforward here. When James mentions the law, again, remember he's talking to a Jewish Christian audience. These are the, church, the house churches that he's writing to outside of Palestine, and they would know that generally James is talking about the Old Testament law here, but I think more specifically what James is getting at, what he's honing in on is the royal law that he mentions two chapters earlier in James 2.8. And James 2.8 says this, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And so what James says is, is this is how when we speak evil against someone, we see ourselves as superior to God's law. Is he's saying, one, you disobey God's law because instead of speaking to your neighbor as you would want to be spoken to, you're disobeying that. So, so now we don't see ourselves as under God's law, as under his authority. We see ourselves above it and we could just kind of pick and choose what we want to obey, and also what we're communicating to God is this, is God, you shouldn't have commanded the royal law. You shouldn't have commanded me to love my neighbor. Instead, you should have commanded me to slander my neighbor. You should have commanded me to judge my neighbor. You should have commanded me to speak evil against my neighbor. Why? Because I don't try to love my neighbor as myself. What I actually do with my actions shows that I wish the law was different. I become a judge of the law. I get to pick and choose uh, which laws I want to obey. And James says that's not our call to make. James 4.17, uh, the last verse in the passage we're looking at this morning, James says this in verse 17. For whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Those are some, some heavy words. 
And so we've been getting a crystal clear command here to, to, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Matthew 22, the greatest commandment, to love God with everything we got and love our neighbor as ourselves. And when we put on uh, a slander and gossip and defamation, we're willfully disobeying that and saying that we're superior to God's law and we get to call the shots uh, on, on, what, on what laws we, have to, we get to obey. And lastly, what James illustrates for us is not only do we see ourselves as superior to others and the law, but we see ourselves as superior to God himself. In verse 12, James says, There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And so when we speak evil against uh, one another, what we're doing is we're trying to kind of uh, 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 nudge God off of the throne of the universe and, and, and his role that belongs to him alone as ultimate lawgiver and judge. And church, I, I, got, I got news for you. There, there, what James is saying here is there's one lawgiver and there's one judge. His name is God, and I don't think he needs our help. I think he's got that job covered. Who, who are we to judge our neighbor? God alone is the author, the giver, and the taker of life. He can save and destroy as the passage teaches us. And I think specifically what James is talking about is when we go and we say, hey, you're going to hell, and, and this person's going to hell, or whatnot. James says that's not your call to make. God is the ultimate judge. That's his call. Who are we? And I got news for us. No one's going to stand before us at the end of their lives and give an account for their deeds, even though that's how we act on social media. We always, I mean, our culture, we love to continually speak evil against people we have never met in situations we know nothing about. And so uh, I know the knee-jerk reaction whenever we talk about do not, ju- do not judge, our knee-jerk reaction is this, well, well, shouldn't we call sin, sin? Don't we need to stand up for what is true and right? Don't we need to make moral evaluations? And the answer is, is yes. James throughout this letter is making moral judgments. Jesus throughout the Gospels called sin, sin. But here's the deal. Jesus was also a friend of sinners. And we throughout scriptures are, are called to make moral discernments and moral evaluations. So, so what then is the command? What is James getting at here when he says do not judge? I think what he's getting at here is it's not necessarily a matter of what, but it's a matter of why in the world are you speaking in the first place? What platform are you coming from? And so I had, I had five subpoints here, and I boiled it down to one for the sake of time, but this is a whole sermon in itself. But ultimately, I think when we have a knee-jerk reaction to, to, to kind of talk our way out of this idea of I can't, do not judge, even when Jesus tells us that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 as well, I think, I think what we need to do is go back to the gospel and have a deeper and fuller understanding of how truly messed up we are and yet how truly loved we are by God. We talked about this all last week. A couple verses earlier, James said, James called the church, he said, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world, you're declaring yourself an enemy to God. And then he says five of the most beautiful words in his letter, but God gives more grace. We are a people who are adulterous and sinful and continually are in daily need of the grace that God is rich in, that God lavishes upon us. And what I'm getting at is that understanding, that understanding should, should slow us down when it comes to judging other people. And this is what uh, I'm getting at. I think what the gospel teaches us is essentially it demolishes, it destroys any moral high ground that we can stand on. Isaiah 53, 6, we all, like sheep, 
have gone astray, each of us to our own way, but the Lord has laid upon him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. Romans 3, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. Where in the world do we come up with any idea of moral high ground when we're speaking evil against somebody else? See, the beauty of the cross, the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ is, is church, it levels the playing field. It completely levels the playing field. The cross screams of our inadequacy. The cross screams of, of our sin and our need for grace, our need for the hope that only Jesus Christ can bring. And then, and then we come to Christ and we receive his grace and all of a sudden we turn into a, a self-righteous and judgmental people. And that's what we extend to a broken world. Goodness gracious. And so what the cross does too is this, is churches, we can no longer say, I would never, when the gospel teaches us, we already have. Oh, I would never do that. I would never do that. Christ went to the cross because we already have. Each and every one of us has gone astray. We have lost the right. If you claim to be a Christian, you are forfeiting the right to say you would never because you're, you are admitting that you already have and you need grace and forgiveness. So where in the world, when you speak down to someone, do you come up with this idea of moral high ground? Christians, uh, this, 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 this nonsense that's happening in our culture where literally people see it as their uh, a moral imperative to speak evil against every injustice and moral failure of people they don't know on social media. I mean, social media is just a rage machine now. Everyone's just mad and they're typing away and they're posting stuff. I'm angry because this person's, and it's, it's just, it's, we've lost our minds. And church, my encouragement to us this morning is, it, can, can that nonsense stop with us? Can that stop with us? And I think the attitude we need to adopt, and then I'll move on after sharing this, is the attitude that uh, Jonathan Edwards has. Jonathan Edwards, a great theologian, but he said this. This is one of his life resolutions. He resolved, he was committed to act and think this way. Listen, I resolve to act in all respects, both in speaking, in speaking and doing, listen, as if nobody on earth has been so vile and sinful as I. And as if I had committed the same sin or had the same infirmities or failings as, as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame, not in them, in myself, and prove only occasion for confessing my own sins and my own misery before the Lord. And so, and so what I'm getting at, and then for the sake of time we need to move on, is, is would a people, would a people, who have been shown undeserved and unmerited mercy, extend that mercy to others? Would a people who have been shown grace speak grace to people? And how about this? Would a people who have been spared just judgment not be so quick to judge others? The gospel, the gospel should cause us, instead of speaking evil against someone, to pray for them. Instead of uh, uh, calling sin, sin, and, and having a sweeping condemnation for people of a, of a certain lifestyle, the gospel should move us to, yes, call sin, sin, but also to, to befriend that person. Maybe sit across the table from, from someone wrestling with a certain lifestyle that we don't agree with, and maybe sit down and listen to how they're feeling, what their take is on how the church treats them and talks about them. Yes, we need to call sin, sin, but we're also called to love the sinner, and Jesus called that, but he also ex exemplified how we're supposed to act. And he, he was friends, was he loved uh, the sinner. And so as we're typing away on social media and, and crying out uh, against certain people, have we prayed for those people? Have we loved them by, by, by 
uh, investing in certain relationships or showing them that we love them. So uh, just not a sermon, just a thought. All right, Christian, who are you to boast? Uh, Verse 13, who are we to boast? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So James is calling out some merchants back in the day, these, these businessmen uh, back in the day, for their presumptuous planning and their arrogant boasting. These guys were saying, uh, today, tomorrow, I'm going to go in this city, I'm going to make this much money, and I'm just going to crush it. It's going to be awesome. This is the profit I'm going to make. And uh, before, we, before we celebrate the fact that James, uh, what James is not saying here is that you don't need to plan anymore. You don't need a desire to make money. And some of you are like, sweet, I can just, you know, stay home and, and watch TV. It's great. That's not what James is saying here. The reason this is a problem is, uh, is this. Like, James clearly, all throughout Scripture, it's, uh, it's encouraged to plan, to make a profit. Just read Proverbs. It's, 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 it's all throughout that. And I have a, I have a, men, a personal mentor of mine. This guy is a very successful businessman. He has the spiritual gift of making money and lots of it. And... Uh, and uh, that's not a spiritual gift. So uh, anyways, but um, he has it if it was one. And uh, he was going to retire early, I think in his 40s, and he felt the Lord tell him, uh, hey, I want you to work for 10 more years. I want you to plan to work for 10 more years to make a profit to share with others for the sake of the gospel. And that's what I think James is getting at here, is he's not, he's not attacking our action of planning or even our desire to make a profit. What he's getting at is the underlying attitude and this self-autonomous uh, attitude where, where basically what James is getting at is he's condemning the mindset of, of a disregard and dismissal for God's lordship in our lives. Because when James shares what he shares, there was no mention of what is the Lord will. There's no mention of what does God want with my life? What does God want with my business? The attitude there is essentially these people with their self-reliant hearts were, were saying uh, in this example, uh, this is my job. This is my life. This is my family. This is my future. I get to call the shots. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. God, you sit back. Here's some popcorn. You sit back and watch me work. Why? Because I'm the man. I'm the man. I'm the man. And James calls that arrogant boasting, and he just calls it what it is. It's pride, and it's evil. It's evil. And and in lieu of that, uh, James reminds us Uh, three things that we need to be reminded about ourselves. And I would say the first thing that he reminds us of is the fact that that we're we're ignorant. We're not all-knowing. God is. We're we're ignorant. And this is what he says in verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. James here, I love the book of James because he just calls it like he sees it. He says, yeah, you can have all these plans you want, but my friends, not only do you not know what tomorrow brings, you don't know what tonight brings. And if you've had, ever had a crazy moment in your life, a health crisis with a family member or, or, or whatever, you know that there comes a day in your life, you snap your fingers and your life has changed for the rest of your life. We have no idea what tomorrow brings. And James reminds us of that, not to freak us out, but to humble us, to humble us and help us know that, that this, this self-exaltation and self-reliance is, is all a facade for true, how truly weak we are. He's calling us to, to see ourselves as we truly are. Or we're, we're ignorant of the future. We don't know the future. And, and next up, James reminds us that we are dependent. 
We are, we are dependent beings. And James says this in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord uh, wills, we will live. If the Lord will, wills, we will live and do this or that. And so that if the Lord wills there, that's not supposed to be a cliche. We're now in your uh, Gmail calendar. You add like, uh, if the Lord wills, after everything you put in there. He's not, that's not what he's saying. It's supposed, to be, it's supposed to be a conviction. It's supposed to be a conviction that I ultimately am dependent on not my plans, but God's plans for my life. He is on the throne of the universe. He's on the throne of my life, and he's going to have his way with my life. So I need to plan. I need to be a good steward. But ultimately, this is what it says in Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We can plan all we want, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And what's interesting is uh, uh, my sister and brother-in-law, my brother-in-law had, a, had a, just a tragedy in his family recently, within a, a few weeks. And uh, it was a sudden death, and, it, and it, left, it left a two-year-old girl without any parents in the family. And so you snap the fingers uh, and my sister and her husband, they had three kids, 10, 8, and 6 years old, and they were planning their life. They are going to live their life with their family of five. You snap the fingers, and the Lord says, okay, there's a little girl in your extended family that uh, you could uh, let go to foster care. Or guess what? Here's my plan for your life. You're going to become a family of six now. Three weeks ago, family of five, fast forward a little bit, snap the fingers. God's plan is, hey, you're going to be a family of six. As I have adopted you as my son and my daughter, I'm calling you to adopt this girl into your family. The orphan now has a family, which is beautiful. But in that, we see, we see that, one, we don't know the future, and see we are dependent on God's plan, God's will for our lives. And again, that should cause us to humble ourselves and to get over ourselves and realize that God ultimately is calling the shots and he's in control. And lastly, I will conclude with this. Lastly, what we see in verse 14 is, is James again calls it like he sees it, and he says some things that I think we need to truly think about says, verse 14, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I think the sad part is in our culture, we're so bent up on questions that do not matter at all. Like who is the bachelor going to choose on Monday? And, And, you know, questions like that, that we never stop and we never consider life's most important questions. Like, why in the world am I here? What is my life? Why do I exist rather than not exist? Where did I come from? And what happens, not if, but what happens when I die? I see, James says, yes, you might be ignorant of the future, but what James says is there's one thing about your future that, that none of us are ignorant of. There's one guarantee in life, and, and that guarantee is that there's going to come a time when you're no longer alive. The Bible encourages us to give careful thought to our lives, give careful thought to our ways. My friends, have we considered those questions? Do we know the hope that comes in knowing Jesus Christ? Do we know the purpose that he gives, the meaning that he gives, the the destiny that he gives? And uh, how sad would it be, how sad would it be for us in uh, the name of pride to entirely miss the point of our existence. How sad would it be in the name of self-exaltation and self-love to forfeit an all-satisfying and everlasting love that can be found in humbling ourselves before Christ. That would be a tragedy, my friends. 
that'd be a tragedy, a wasted life, a life committed to trifles, when all satisfying and eternal love is, is, is presented before us. Purpose, meaning, destiny, life abundantly in Christ. And so, in contrast to a life of self-exaltation, James encourages us to look to Christ when he says this in 4.10. Uh, James 4.10, he says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. When he's saying that, he's pointing us to the ultimate example of humility, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 uh, uh, is beautiful. It's, it's, I'm going to paraphrase because it's kind of uh, too long for the sake of time here. But what we learn by, by looking at uh, our Savior's attitude to, to his standing is that he, he was a king who left his throne. He was God who did not consider equality with God. He made himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant. Jesus Christ took on human flesh, lived the life that we couldn't live, paid the penalty that we couldn't pay, went to the cross in humiliation, bore our humiliation, bore our shame and our guilt, took the hit on our behalf. He was humbled in his death, but God exalted him in his resurrection. And scripture says, placed him at his right hand, seated above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And what James is getting at here is Christians, in light of the humility of your King Jesus, would you get over yourself and humble yourself before him and let him be the one who exalts you? So with that said, let's, uh, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we confess, Lord, uh, Lord our, uh, our sin of pride and, and self-focus and self-obsession, Lord. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you are a God abundant. You are God rich in mercy and grace. And we know that that was a costly grace, Lord, uh, uh, that you gave of your very body and blood uh, for, for, the, for our ransom, Lord. So we praise your name. We exalt you. Uh, we live to bring you praise and you glory, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we leave here, we'd humble ourselves and we live to exalt your name and make much of your name, Jesus. And we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.